Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Operating on my orders, the United States military forces successfully moved a major terrorist threat to the world. Knowing that this terrorist had chosen to surround himself with families, including children, we made a choice to pursue a special forces raid at a much greater risk to our own people rather than targeting him with an airstrike. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. On the 3rd of February, U.S. President Joe Biden announced that U.S. Special Forces had killed the leader of the Islamic State, or ISIS, Abdullah Kardash, in a house where he was hiding out in Idlib province in northwest Syria. Idlib's held by another militant group, Hayat Takr al-Sham, a former al-Qaeda affiliate and supposedly a sworn enemy of ISIS. Many in the Idlib region say they will never be able to live safely under Assad's government. Much of the area is controlled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, or HTS. The group describes itself as an amalgamation of Syrian nationalist opposition groups. But HTS is also listed as a terrorist organization by the U.S. and other countries because of its former ties to al-Qaeda. Kardashian's killing came just after ISIS's largest attack in Syria for years, on a prison holding many ISIS prisoners in Syria's northeast, and a two-week-long pitch battle between ISIS and Kurdish forces, the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, that control that area. The so-called Islamic State has launched the largest scale attack in Syria since it was defeated there in 2019. Their target, a prison holding jihadists in the northeast. And the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces say they've repelled the attackers and recaptured all or most of the inmates who'd escaped in the chaos. So what should we make of ISIS and the counter-ISIS campaign after Kardashian's killing and the attacks on the SDF-held prison? What about the relationship between the ISIS core in Syria and affiliates in other parts of the world? And how should we understand Hayat Takr al-Sham's rule in Idlib and the aspirations of its leader, Abu Muhammad al-Jalani? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome on Darin Khalifa, Crisis Group Syria expert, and Jerome Dravon, who's our expert on Islamist militancy across the world. Darin, Jerome, welcome on. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much, Richard, for having us. 
So why don't we start then, uh, as we just heard, a couple of things have happened recently. First, there was the the jailbreak uh, in uh, Haseka in in northeast Syria, this sort of protracted ISIS attack on on the jail. And then uh, the ISIS leader, Abdullah Kardash, uh, was killed in the northwest in Idlib. What are these things, sort of broadly speaking, what do they tell us about sort of what ISIS is now and and the danger it poses? I think both incidents are more telling of the limitations and shortcomings of the counter-ISIS forces than they are of the ISIS capabilities. For example, let's take the Rwayran attack, the prison attack. What happened with the January 22 uh, attack on the prison was, it was incredibly alarming, yet not at all surprising. Prison breaks have always been a major part of ISIS strategy, and they've been very vocal about it in their media. Before the attack, there were several less publicized ISIS foiled plots in the prison. What we have in northeast Syria is that the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, or the SDF, currently runs over 27 detention facilities, holding tens of thousands of ISIS fighters, their family members, and often even minors. To their credit, or in their defense, the SDF has never really overstated their ability to guard these prisons and have always mentioned privately and publicly that they're stretched thin and that they're not going to be able to guard these facilities forever. Many of these detentions are basically just converted schools, hospitals, and warehouses that they're just not meant or designed to hold prisoners indefinitely. The January attack itself and the events that followed were a glaring reminder that these facilities are a growing flashpoint. ISIS cells basically were able to bribe the prison guards and smuggled in phones to coordinate the attack with inmates inside. They then drove two car bombs to the prison and set them off at the main gate. While the inmates staged a riot at the same time and overpowered their guards and they managed to break out and spread out in nearby neighborhoods. Simultaneously, ISIS activated its cells in their resort and Raqqa and they started shooting at SDF checkpoints and warning people uh, to stay in their homes. The fight between the SDF and ISIS lasted for over two weeks. Over 200 SDF fighters were killed. But just imagine the fact that this prison that holds thousands of ISIS fighters, some of the most dangerous people, was guarded by unarmed, member, uh, unarmed members of the SDF self-defense units, which is basically a volunteer force of mostly 18-year-olds who received an average of 45 days of training, that undertrained and under-equipped force was, of course, quickly overrun by ISIS, and ISIS was able to kill 65 of them, and they took 20 other captives. And the fact that ISIS cells were able to drive through multiple SDF checkpoints with two car bombs and reach that prison that is located in a populated area only a few kilometers away from a U.S. base really underscores the shortcomings of the existing security mechanisms in the area. But I think it's important not to exaggerate ISIS capabilities. The group is in an overall low point, and the sustained U.S. presence in Syria that helped with the killing of Kardashian, of course, is keeping a lid on the group. But it's also important to remember that ISIS has been even lower points previously in earlier incarnations in Iraq between 2008 and 2011. But what ISIS has shown over the years is that they have a resilient ability to stay in the game um, when they're weakened and feed off their enemies' weaknesses. So that's why I say that these two incidents you highlighted, Richard, show that the shortcomings that need to be addressed with the counter-ISIS forces more than they do of the ISIS threat itself. 
do we have a sense of how many of those ISIS fighters that were in uh, in that prison? Do we have a sense of how many actually escaped? So that's a really good question, and I think that was a major security vulnerability as well that the SDF was not able and has not been able to give consistent numbers on who managed to escape and who was captured and who actually died on the ISIS side. Um, and I do think that's because they don't have solid databases of the ISIS prisoners and of their families, which is a huge problem. They themselves acknowledge that it is a problem. So the numbers that were given were pretty much all over the place. So in reality, the SDF don't actually sort of know who's in the jails, or they know, but they don't have the information recorded in a credible way? They know roughly, but they don't have archives, they don't have solid database. And it's important to, to also remember that this is a, it's a paramilitary force, it's not a state, it doesn't have the capabilities of a state. Um, it's also a, a, a nascent force, only a few years old, so they definitely don't have solid information on the camps, for instance, that have large numbers of women and children. With the detention facilities, it depends on which facility, but some of the bigger ones, they don't have concrete numbers of who's inside. So let's sort of back up a little bit. And um, I mean, what, it's 2017, really, that ISIS lost most of the, the territory it controlled sort of during its during its heyday. But then, what, the last town it lost, this sort of Syrian town of Baghus near the Iraqi border, what that was March 2019. What's happened since then? Because this, this, although the jailbreak was sort of got a lot of attention, was very prominent, as you say, there were signs that ISIS, you know, if not making a comeback, was still kind of around, was still resilient. There'd been signs for the last couple of years. So how has ISIS survived and where are most of its fighters at the moment? So you're absolutely right. ISIS lost its, its effective territorial control in, in March 2019. But once they start losing territorial control, they quickly shifted their strategy from this dual civil military governing one to a more localized insurgency, where ISIS leaders appear to just provide broad strategic guidance to the group's affiliates and, and sympathizers through online messaging, rather than day-to-day -day command. And when you sorry, Darren, when you talk about the affiliates, you're talking about units in Syria and Iraq itself. Correct. Yes, I'm talking about the Syrian and Iraqi um, ISIS contingent, basically. Since then, since they lost their territorial control, the, the then they once controlled was basically, or has fallen under the control of several parties. So you have the Iraqi military and the Popular Mobilization Forces, or Hashd in Iraq. You have the Kurdish that Syrian Democratic Forces, backed by the U.S. in northeast Syria. You have Turkey and its allies in Aleppo, and then the Islamist group Hayat Tahrir Sham in Idlib. But you also have Russia, the Syrian regime, uh, and the, and Iran in in central Syria. So you have four, four zones of influence in Syria, and ISIS has been able to maintain communication and transit networks across these regions, and has been also able to tailor its insurgency to specific roles in each one of these places. For example, it uses central Syria as its main training hub for new recruits and a base for its operations. It uses the Northeast as a financial and logistical hub, and it uses northern Syria and northwestern Syria more as a transit point and hideouts for mid and senior level commanders who can enjoy a degree of anonymity among the large number of displaced communities there. But 
I think the two key things that allowed ISIS to maintain its insurgency across Syria, despite its territorial defeat and despite the military pressure put on it, is the fact that some of these counter-ISIS forces are quite antagonistic to each other and have, at times, prioritized the fight against each other over the fight against ISIS. And also that the internal artificial borders between these various areas of control are very porous and easily exploited by ISIS cells who are able to move personnel, equipment, and even often livestock between different places very easily whenever they see an opportunity or whenever they face pressure in one area, basically. And so let's focus on Syria for now. Most of the fighting itself or the sort of violence that involves ISIS has taken place in the northeast, which will come to the Kurdish-held areas, and the desert, the Badia in central Syria, where it seems as though sort of units of ISIS operate. How have they put their tentacles in or, or remained a presence in that area in central Syria? Right. So central Syria is, this, is the area also known as Ibadia. It's, it's basically this remote desert and mountain region that stretches from eastern Homs to the Euphrates and from Iraq to southern Aleppo and encompasses much of Homs, Hama, southern Raqqa and, and western Erisor. So it's a large swath of, of territory. And many have really overlooked the significance of this area, partly because there's very limited access there. The Global Coalition to Fight ISIS is not present on the ground. The Syrian regime, Russia and Iran, have been fighting an ISIS insurgency there for a bit over four years now, but have only found some success in 2021. What happened really with the Badia is that once the SDF started capturing territories in the northeast, ISIS quickly made central Syria their base for their insurgency. They started storing weapons and supplies there. They set up training camps and established safe houses that they basically retreat to when under pressure on other fronts. They were able to feed off the local population and, and made a lot of money extorting from regime-affiliated businessmen who were transferring oil from eastern Syria to Damascus via, via this area. It seems to me that ISIS's current strategic goal in central Syria today is to defend its supply lines and training camps via preventing regime forces from establishing any firm control over the region. For many years, the Syrian regime has really prioritized the fight against the opposition in, over the fight against ISIS. So they were only sending a mix of militias and low-tier army units to fight ISIS in Badia without providing them with air cover. So these people were, these soldiers were mostly ambushed and killed by ISIS there. It wasn't until late 2020 and early 2021 that the regime finally began sending significant reinforcement and uh, coupled with air power to central Syria to fight ISIS. I think the turning point for the regime really came in late 2020 when ISIS con conducted a major operation that killed over 30 regime soldiers. And it was only then that Damascus started sending significant troops to central Syria. I think they launched the biggest counter-ISIS operation they have launched since 2017. This really led to a significant drop in ISIS attacks in central Syria throughout 2021, but it also led to an increased flow of fighters moving into northeast Syria. So far, there's a general sense of quiet. Of course, it's very precarious, and that might change if there's any significant changes in regime military posture in the area. For instance, if the regime decides to prioritize a renewed offensive on Idlib, for instance, that could really shift the balance of power in central Syria. 
so then let's come to the, uh, the, the, the northeast. If that's sort of ISIS in the, in the desert, under pressure now from the regime, for now at least, you know, and, and, and as you say, that could change. But for now, regime forces sort of taking seriously the, the, the need to contain ISIS in the desert. So if ISIS is under pressure there, what does that, what does that meant for its operations in the Kurdish-held areas in the northeast? So, uh, you know, some of its former heartlands, what Raqqa, Deir Ezzor, uh, and some of these areas up by the, the Iraqi border. Right. So the northeast and central Syria are very much intertwined, and what happens in one of these theaters really has a direct impact on the other. The northeast in, in the last couple of years has become a, a central pillar for the ISIS strategy. It's a lucrative hub and um, it's rich in natural resources, including oil and gas. It has deep economic links with the rest of Syria and with Iraq. And there, ISIS generally relies on um, three sources of funding. Basically, they get they have protection money, racketeering. Basically, um, they impose taxation on people, and there's a lot of smuggling going on between the various parts of Syria and between the northeast and Iraq. This basically allows them to continue to fund their operations in the northeast and elsewhere. It allows them to recruit and it allows them to pay bribes to get fighters and their families out of detention facilities and often out of Syria altogether. The SDF basically today controls most of the former ISIS strongholds east of the Euphrates. This includes Hasika, Deir Ezzor, Raqqa, Menbish, Kobani, and they've been really an indispensable partner to the international coalition. They've achieved major strides in the battles against ISIS, yet they are struggling to contain the growing ISIS insurgency or the growing ISIS presence in the area. What we've seen is that ISIS has been pursuing a local insurgency. It's been keeping this drumbeat of low-level violence, um, mainly in the Arab-majority areas and mostly targeting Arabs working or collaborating with the SDF. They do this through um, roadside bombs, drive-by shootings and targeted destinations. And... You know, a number of factors are are really undermining the SDF's ability to contain the ISIS insurgency there. And perhaps the biggest of these challenges is this lingering fear that the U.S. may abruptly end its military protection over the area, and by extension, its support to the SDF's counter-ISIS efforts. And while the Biden administration has signaled that they're staying, but there just remains this residual trauma of Trump's withdrawal announcements that ended with a partial retreat of U.S. forces, in addition, of course, to Biden's messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. So the perception that the U.S. is not there for the long haul has deterred many locals from cooperating with the SDF's counter-ISIS efforts, and this has significantly hindered the SDF's ability to build intelligence networks in, in, in communities in majority Arab areas and has been really impacting their ability to contain the insurgency altogether there. Just sort of to recap, the Trump uh, threat to pull out that you mentioned, this was when sort of President Trump abruptly announced that he would pull all U.S. forces out of northeast Syria. That was back in 2019. And then in reality, it, it seemed that some of his military commanders sort of walked him back and then he, he, he kind of reversed that decision. But that was the sort of shock that you've talked about. And we can, Darren, we should come back to some of the dilemmas that the U.S. presence poses the SDF. But could you just, I mean, in addition to that, aren't there also challenges that the SDF faces in its relations with, as you say, particularly the majority Arab areas? There are problems that aren't related to the U.S.'s presence and uh, people's suspicions that it's not going to be there forever. 
No, absolutely. I think the SDF has a major trust issue with the predominantly Arab um, population. I mean, the SDF just doesn't trust the population. They think many of them have joined ISIS, um, so they don't trust their ideology or their allegiances. Um, and the majority Arab population think that the SDF is just marginalizing them from decision making and that they're they're quite exclusive and reliant on people, well, Kurds who they trust. And they also think that the SDF is just too cozy with the Syrian regime in Damascus and because they have maintained these economic linkages with Damascus and, and they've also had, or they're they have political conversations with Damascus. So the perception amongst many Arabs is that the SDF might end up selling them out um, to the Syrian regime in return for a quick pro quo to protect Kurdish areas, for instance. So I don't think that, that fear is grounded, but it's very much the perception in the Northeast. Um, and if everyone believes it, it really does undermine the trust between, between the population and the SDF. And, and again, this lack of trust has hindered their ability to build solid intelligence networks and to generate local buy-in to their counter-ISIS mission. So, I mean, one thing is uh, poor relations or distrust among the local, particularly Arab population and the SDF. Uh, and another thing is the local Arab population's distrust of the, the, the regime and fear that the SDF might sell them out to the regime. But that doesn't necessarily presumably lead to support to ISIS. Presumably, the trauma of what ISIS did when it held Raqqa or, or Deir Ezzor or other areas, I mean, presumably, that's still a, a sort of fresh memory. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I should have clarified that I don't necessarily mean that people are supportive of ISIS, but they're not supportive of the SDF's efforts. So they don't want to be seen or perceived as supporting the SDF. Um, so, for instance, if if you're living in the countryside of Deir Ezzor and you know that you know this there's this ISIS member or ISIS element that is living in a house nearby or renting a house nearby, you have two choices: either to stay quiet or to inform the SDF. So, if you don't trust that the SDF really has your back and is going to offer you the protection you need, you won't report it. You'll fear for your life, and that's exactly what's happening. Darin, on this dilemma that the Kurds face, and which obviously has big implications for the fight against ISIS, I mean, you've met several times SDF leader, uh, Muslim Kobani, other SDF commanders. So, so I'm interested to know kind of how you think they understand this. It's one thing to say that they're perceived as being too cosy to the regime, but the SDF are in a pretty tricky spot, right? I mean, they're entirely reliant on US protection. When ISIS was seen as this big threat, I mean, they could rely on enormous foreign support but presumably they realize that that's unlikely to last forever uh, at the same time they have these very difficult relations with turkey turkey perceives that the ypg which is part of the the sdf is basically part of the kurdistan workers party the pkk the turkish insurgency turkey's mortal enemy now u.s president joe biden says that he has no intention of pulling u.s troops out of syria for now but clearly the u.s presence on which the Kurds rely on for protection. I mean, that hinges on politics in Washington. So if you think then that the SDF are what, not only guarding the jails where you have thousands of former ISIS fighters, even larger numbers of women and children that were associated with ISIS, 
But it's also keeping ISIS at bay in those areas of Syria's northeast where it was so dominant, you know, a few years ago. How does the SDF sort of view that dilemma? I mean, how are they hedging, if they are hedging, sort of against the US uh, not being there forever? And, and how are they thinking about not just the fight against ISIS, obviously, but their own sort of survival uh, over the longer term? Well, as you said, Richard, I think they recognize the very difficult conundrum they're in. They are surrounded, as you've mentioned correctly, the SDFs, it's in an ongoing conflict with the Turkish state. The backbone of the SDF is the, is the YPG or the YPJ, which is the Syrian affiliate of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, a group designated by Turkey as a terrorist organization and a group that has been entangled in war with the Turkish state for decades. Turkey sees the SDF basically as an extension of, of the PKK and sees its control over large swath of territory and resources south of its border as a national security threat. And as such, they've made several military moves against the group in Syria. And this ongoing risk of farther Turkish military moves is looming constantly on the northeast, both on the SDF, but also on the local population there. So it's an ongoing threat. And it's something that we've also written extensively about, saying like, this is the main conundrum in the Northeast, the Turkish um, SDF dynamics, and that's the main problem that needs to be resolved. So there needs to be political um, and diplomatic efforts and back-channeling being done by the US and by other Western countries in order to try to find a detente that would spare the area farther conflict and that would spare, honestly, the SDF a war that is going to obliterate them but it's also going to derail the counter-ISIS efforts and, and probably reverse a lot of the gains that have been achieved throughout the last few years. Um, many have thought that the SDF looks at Damascus as a way out of that dilemma. Perhaps that was the case at some point within some of the SDF's leadership who thought, you know, maybe we can strike a deal with Damascus and, and that would allow for partial or nominal return of the Syrian state to the northeast, and that would offer some kind of protection against a Turkish incursion. Um, I think increasingly the, the SDF leadership do not think that's the case. I think they're right to think that. Damascus doesn't really budge and doesn't compromise much in their negotiations, so if they do strike a deal with the SDF, it will be a full surrender deal. But more importantly, I don't think that will stop Turkey at all. Um, the way Ankar sees this is that if there is a deal between the SDF and Damascus, uh, a deal that would protect the SDF, they, they see it more like a return to the 90s situation where the Syrian regime was protecting the PKK operations in Syria. So they don't think that's going to address their national security concerns. On the contrary, they think it will just exacerbate it. And so, I mean, if the regime isn't an answer, I mean, we've spoken about this and written about this before, presumably the answer has to lie somehow in the SDF severing its ties or convincing Turkey that it's disassociated from the PKK. And yet there's been zero progress towards doing that. If anything, they're more deeply interwoven now than they were a few years ago. Correct. Um I think the SDF has very tough choices, but what they don't have is the ability to basically continue to control a quarter of Syria, continue to have links and connections to the PKK while the PKK continues its insurgency in Turkey. I think they're going to have to give up one of these things. And I think it's incredibly difficult to sever ties between the YPG and the PKK. Uh, but at the end of the day, 
finding a way to end the insurgency in Turkey or put a halt on the insurgency in Turkey might be very difficult and the atmosphere might not be conducive in Ankara for it at the moment, but it's not impossible. And there were peace talks in the past between them. Um, and I think no matter who you talk to in Ankara, even the more hardline elements on this would tell you that there's no military solution and there ultimately needs to be a political process of some sort. But again, it's very difficult and the time might not be right for it right now. But I think it's important for the U.S. and others who are involved with the YPG to continue to lay the groundwork for that. And so what you're describing is that the U.S. presence, which isn't very big in northeast Syria, it's not that it's crucial for fighting ISIS in itself, although you know, clearly the support it gives to the to the SDF definitely helps. But it is crucial to stop an escalation among ISIS's enemies, whether that's between the Kurds, the SDF and Turkey, whether it's between the SDF and the regime, you know, some sort of uh, free for all in the in the northeast that ISIS would almost certainly profit from. So it's sort of another case where it's sort of harder for the U.S. to pull out than it is to deploy. Absolutely. The U.S. is effectively deterring a violent free-for-all in the Northeast. So they are not on the front lines fighting ISIS. They never have been. They've only been offering air protection for the SDF. So they've been offering support. The SDF has done all the heavy lifting on the ground They've lost a lot of their fighters in the fight against ISIS, and um, they are the ones currently governing the Northeast. So the U.S. presence there is a light footprint, but it has rewards in terms of keeping the area protected and in terms of keeping the lid on the ISIS insurgency there as well. If I may add something about this, if we look at the pattern of violence of IS, as uh, Darren mentioned earlier, we have a growing insurgency. It's been represented by what happened with the prison break. But we should still be mindful about what IS is doing and about its potential at the moment. We are not in early 2010s when IS similarly was doing jailbreak-up in Iraq and then managed to take over large parts of territory. At the moment, it's not possible, and that specifically because of the US, uh, US presence. At the moment, IS is not trying to rebuild its state. It knows that the U.S. presence, even though it's quite limited in numbers, is actually a major impediment to them. So what they are trying to do is to continue to free prisoners, continue to structure its networks, to survive, to expand, to destabilize the region. But in the current circumstances, they can't take over territory. And the most clear evidence was what happened when they tried to take over the prison. They controlled some some neighborhoods for two weeks afterwards. But then you had very quickly a military intervention supported by Western military troops, including American and British special forces. But if the situation changed regionally or internationally with the US involvement, things could transform very quickly on the ground. And Jerome, Doreen has talked about what ISIS is doing in the Badia and then also in, in the Northeast, where units are operating very locally. Is this a, a, a sort of centrally directed ISIS strategy? I mean, how, how much is that even feasible if, you know, as the, the last leader was, was killed, sort of hiding in a house in, in Idlib, quite far from where these groups are operating? I mean, how much is this, how much should we see this as sort of one coherent strategy of, of ISIS in Syria? And how much sort of a lot of different groups, remnants of, of you know, what was ISIS sort of operating with a, with a large degree of autonomy? 
I think we really have to differentiate what you can do as a group when you're controlling large part of the territory and when you're not. When you're controlling large part of the territory, you can actually be very centralized, the way IS was. You can have ministries, you can have regulations, you can impose consistent laws and impose them throughout the territory. That's possible. And you can also very easily prepare attacks abroad because you can train people to evolve in. in public. You're not trying to survive. And so you have more time and resources to actually plan these things, especially because you can attract foreign fighters and so on that are more efficient if they come back to their own countries to launch, to launch attacks where they come from. Now we are in a very different situation. IS in inside CIA is not controlling territory. And so have very broad strategic guidance. But then as a leader, you don't need to actually have a, a ground control over every single armed operation. Because those cells, they know what they are doing, so they can get their money locally, they can train, they can recruit, and so on. You don't actually even need to control that in details. And so what we got from our interlocutors, for example, about the prison break, is quite representative. It seems that uh, Kardash, the caliph at the time, actually agreed about the principle of the operation. But then he agreed about the principle, and he probably coordinated with his commanders exchange of letters, but that doesn't give him a control over the operational details, like when exactly it happens, how many soldiers you have, how much military equipment, etc. That's very much delegated to people on the ground who are actually more able to organize that in, uh, in details. So you can have this centralization of the strategic de de decisions while the operation is very much uh, decentralized, because in the current circumstances, you don't even require to have something more than that. And the guys that he's communicating with, the, the commanders on the ground, these are, these are the same people that were fighting with ISIS when it captured big chunks of, of Syria and Iraq, or these are new recruits and it's a, it's a movement that's constantly regenerating? Mostly the, the commanders are people who have been involved in the group for quite a long time. So those are people who trust one another, who know one another. But then you can have a commander that's a veteran on the ground in the reserve and others, but then he can recruit locally and use those local recruits to participate in the operation. And mostly we're talking about Syrians and Iraqis. Yes, because you don't really have foreigners anymore in the area. And that actually, that's also not possible in the current circumstances. Because when you're becoming more, more local again, Iraqis and Syrians can very much mix with the local population. It's much harder if you are a foreigner. So the foreigners are either jailed or many of them have simply escaped from the country. And the um, command or the control that you talk about, even if it's broad brush, that Kardash, before he was killed, enjoyed, that presumably the current leader enjoys in a similar way, over commanders in, in Syria, I mean, that, that also applies in Iraq? I mean, we should still see it as one cross-border insurgency? Yes, exactly. According to our interlocutor, there have been some uh, armed attacks are continuing in some parts of Iraq, for example, around uh, Kirkuk. IS regularly claims for uh, for limited attacks against uh, local security forces, but it's something that's at a very very low scale because the ability of the group to actually launch armed attacks in Iraq is much lower than in Syria because there is not as much space simply for the group to expand there. And so, Jerome, I mean, what we're talking about is a group that's that's sort of very rooted in parts of Syria, parts of Iraq, and yet you have. A lot of people talking about ISIS's expansion in Africa, for example, or 
the local ISIS affiliate Khorasan province in Afghanistan, uh, where different militant groups, you know, in essence, their leaders pledge allegiance to ISIS's leader. I mean, how does that sort of global story fit with what, from what you've described, is basically a sort of underground, resilient, but not very potent, an entirely locally focused insurgency in the Levant? Actually, what you see that the localism that we find in in those places in Syria, you see it elsewhere in Africa. For example, there have been uh, we have witnessed the growth of an IS affiliated network in Central and East Africa. So we speak about uh, Eastern DRC, we speak about uh, Northern Mozambique, uh, and so on. So there have been people who have claimed to belong to the group, and IS has recognized them as such as uh, as an affiliate. And so we've traveled to the region and we've been given private documentation that were retrieved from an operational cell that belonged to IS and that was trying to plan IEDs in the, in the region. And what I found striking when we were looking at those information. And that's the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, uh, a former Ugandan rebel group uh, that now operates in the eastern DRC that we actually talked about on the podcast last Yes, week. exactly. They were planning to launch armed attacks in uh, in Kigali. And so the cell was dismantled, but we got access to the data f- of to the laptops of, uh, of the cell. And when you look at the laptops, you see that in terms of the, the videos, the songs, the forms of references, etc., everything is very local or at best regional. In the Swahili region, we, are, we have people who sing in their local languages, whose reference and immediate objective is to take over uh, take over the region. And so they identify with the Islamic State as a, as a broader set of principles. But for them, it's not even very clear what it means ideologically. There is not necessarily an ideological coherence. When you look at their data, they are mixing things from the Taliban, from Al-Qaeda, from IS, even from, uh, from Hamas. For them, they don't really understand those differences between these groups because they just refer to them as a general set of principles, like we want an Islamic state uh, locally. And that's somehow where IS has been successful. They can tell them, look, your solution is to create your local Islamic state. And that very much resonates with local local grievances, what are some of these radicalized militants' immediate uh, immediate objectives. So they can just refer to IS as a set of references, as a pattern to reproduce locally in terms of how you structure your Islamic state. But in practice, whatever remains of IS Central does not control what happens on the ground. So, you know, again, staying with the ADF, does that mean there's communication between, or there would have been communication between Kardash himself, the ISIS leader, holed up somewhere in northwest Syria, and sort of commanders on the ground in eastern DRC? Or is it much looser than that? I think it's a bit in uh, in between. What you have is those local affiliates, whether ADF in uh, eastern DRC or the group called Shabab in northern Mozambique, which is not the Somali Shabab, but which is the Shabab that's affiliated to IS, they do centralize some of their communication. So if they launch specific armed attacks, they do send it to a centralized some centralized infrastructures that publicize it in the weekly publication of uh, of IS. But then it seems to us from the documentation that we had access to that the type of coordination that you have between different affiliates of IS are internal within Africa. So, for example, we got documents showing that 
uh, the Shebab group in northern Mozambique that's affiliated to IS was reporting to IS in northern Somalia. They were telling them those are our, capa our capabilities, number of weapons that we have, number of militants and so on, and those are the attacks that we are organizing. So there is not a command and control, but they are somehow trying to report what they are doing. And so then we can assume that there could be some more communication from IS in Somalia to some central uh, central command. But it's it's very loose and it's not really institutionalized. And so what you're describing, I mean, this is kind of a bit of a parody of the debate, but broadly speaking, you have a, a, a view where ISIS is kind of centrally directed, that it's part of a plan directed by ISIS leaders to to build a global presence. You know, that view on the one hand against the other view, which is, you know, that these are largely just local insurgency. They call themselves ISIS, but that actually doesn't mean very much. But what you're describing is something in between, right, that... that Predominantly, groups are local. They're rooted in local dynamics. Mostly, uh, the people fighting in them are local. You know, they're explained by local politics much more than they are by global trends. But it's also not completely irrelevant their their ISIS connection. I mean, it does mean something. Exactly, there is some exchange of information. They are trying to replicate similar models and to implement it in their own uh, in their own context. So I very much fit into the being in the middle. It's neither nor. There is some type of connection. In Africa, it seems it's not really very advanced, very developed, very institutionalized. Because at the same time, to what extent, if you are the former Amir Kardash in Idlib, to what extent can you really impose your decisions over northeast Nigeria, over eastern DRC, and so on? But you can provide general guidance. And then there can be some, some commanders with additional information telling you how to uh, orchestrate that or that military, uh, military operation. But we have to be mindful when we just focus on those local affiliates ideologies in thinking that it's really all co consistent and coherent. I think for most of them, it's really a set of general principles. Like we, identify with the idea of reviving the, the caliphate worldwide. It's an appealing idea. doesn't mean that they really know what IS stands for in details, the intricacies of its theology. That usually does not happen because they are fighting for more immediate and local objectives. So back to the ISIS core in Syria. You know, from what you both described, it seems that if things sort of carry on as they are, if this relative calm among ISIS's enemies, the regime, the SDF, Turkey, if that holds, then ISIS is unlikely to grow much in strength. But what could lead to a change would be either the regime and its allies sort of shifting resources again away from central Syria, or alternatively, the US changing policy, uh, rethinking its presence in the northeast. I mean, that that seems to be the only way that ISIS could make a comeback to anything like the strength that it had some years ago. Is that right? Yes. Um, well, I would say like there's a number of things that could happen that would really shake the current um, stalemate in Syria. The U.S. pulling out is definitely one of them, but also renewed Turkish offensives on the northeast, fighting between. We talked about potential fighting between Turkey and and the SDF. Uh, renewed regime offensives on Idlib, for instance, that would create chaos in Idlib and change the Russian regime military posture in central Syria. A major economic collapse in country, a collapse in SDF, civil and military institutions. There's a wide array of potential scenarios that could really create enough chaos that could be exploited by ISIS, if and when that happens. 
Let's talk then about the northwest where Kardash was killed. And as, as we heard up top, it's an area controlled by Hayat Takhra al-Sham, or HTS, a former al-Qaeda affiliate that broke with the, the global movement over the past few years. It's now sort of focused on governing Idlib. And there's been this ceasefire since early 2020 between rebels in that area and the regime and its allies. Turkey has deployed troops to deter, in essence, a, a regime offensive. Darin, so you were there shortly after Kardashi's killing and you visited the site. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about sort of where he was killed and, and, and what he was doing? So in early February, the U.S. raided a house in a small town in northwest Syria called Atma. They killed Kardash, who's an Iraqi national, also known as Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi Qurayshi. He became leader in 2019 when Baghdadi was killed. And as you mentioned, Richard, we managed to visit the area right after. And just going there and speaking to his neighbors and to the landlord of the house where Kardash was killed, it really helped me understand how such a high-profile designated terrorist could live under the radar um, in such a place. So we drove to the house where Kardash and his family and also his, his aide, the guy that the U.S. referred to as his lieutenant, the house is basically located in the suburbs outside the town of Atma. It is very close to two big IDP camps hosting more than 80,000 displaced um, Syrians from all over the country. The house itself that Kardash lived in had so many tenants. The landlord said, put a number on it, said around 50 in the two years prior to his arrival in early 2021. Um, this large number of displaced people in the area just simply doesn't allow for the cohesive communities. People simply don't know each other. Houses are unregistered and most tenants either don't have IDs or have forged ones that they use to rent out flats for a few months before they move to a different spot. So this ongoing movement is, is really um, happening on a daily basis. And unfortunately, that hasn't stopped with the ceasefire. Like The UN estimates that despite the ceasefire, there are 30,000 people displaced monthly in Idlib because of these small, relatively small Russian in regime uh, ongoing bombardment on the front lines. Um, so it's a very transient IDP community. People don't know each other. We've heard conflicting stories about what happened, but people asserted that Kardash did not blow himself up as the US claimed. They showed us photos of his body that was found completely intact the next day and was buried. Um, there was also a lot of frustration and fear among the people I spoke to. Fear that such a notorious figure was living in close proximity to them and that the area would be tainted for it. But also there was frustration that the coalition was very quick to announce that the lack of casualties on their side. When people woke up seeing bodies of at least one child and a woman without being given really an explanation to what had happened. We also spoke to the children of Kardashian's lieutenant, or his aide, who survived the raid. I mean, the kids were incredibly traumatized. The little boy described what happened to us as if it was a movie he watched. You know, these kids really have nowhere to go. They're victims of a crime committed by their parents, and they will be stigmatized for life for it. And of course, they're just not alone. There are tens of thousands of Syrian and Iraqi children of ISIS members who are just facing the same fate. And, and over the last few years, uh, Hayat Takhrasham, the militant group that controls um, 
the Northwest. It's publicized a lot the fact that it's kind of cracked down on ISIS cells. I mean, it has a long and complicated relationship with ISIS, um, but had been fighting ISIS for some time. Uh, how could Kardash be sort of operating under the nose of HTS, of Takhar al-Sham, in an area that it normally controls? So, I mean, the US killing of not one, but two ISIS leaders in Idlib is certainly not a good look for HTS. It raises questions about the group's ability to prevent Idlib from becoming a, a staging ground for transnational jihadists. That said, I think um, it's a bit of a stretch for anyone to assume that HTS might have known about his presence. It's, as you mentioned, it's important to note that, I mean, and as we mentioned before, also these internal artificial borders between the various areas of control in Syria are so porous and ISIS constantly moves people and equipment across them. So it's highly likely that both ISIS leaders probably went through different parts of Syria before landing in Idlib, including the Northeast itself, where the US and the global coalition is present. And also the fact that HTS has been in full-blown war with ISIS since 2014 and that this intra-jihadi fighting between HDS and ISIS really left hundreds killed on both sides here. This bloody history between HDS and ISIS is really reflected in their counter-ISIS strategy. Um, they have been working systematically to thwart ISIS attempts to build covert networks in Idlib, and their counter-ISIS raids have really driven the group underground and significantly degraded their capabilities in Idlib. So they probably didn't know that Kardash was there. And if they did, they would have likely raced to be the first to capture the guy. But because it's a large IDP community and to put numbers on it, there's over 3.5 million people living in Italy, 2 million of which are displaced Syrians from different parts of Syria. And 70% of that number are living in IDP camps. So it's it's something that is very hard to for one party to keep a grip on. It's, it's a major security vulnerability they have. And I, I would actually add something. We have to differentiate two things. First, you have Kardash and his lieutenant, and then you have other ISIS operational networks within uh, northwest Syria, the province of Italy. When you speak about uh, Kardash, we, sp- we have to envision a very low footprint. We have somebody who is not leaving his house, who just relies on maybe one or two couriers to get messages in and out. This is extremely difficult to dismantle because you need to have information from people knowing the courier and so on. At the same time, when you have other types of operational networks, so people, member of like small cells that actually want to orchestrate and perpetrate armed attacks within Idlib, HTS has been much more efficient. And that's not a contradiction because those second types of network are much, much heavier because here you need from Five to 15, 20 people. You need people to get to get money, to get recruits, to get finance, to observe speci- specific areas, and then to organize the attack. So that type of network, they've mostly be, been dismantled by HTS, and IS has been unable to actually perpetrate any armed attacks within the, the Idlib province. And Jerome, from what I understand, this is sort of not only a continuation of Hayat Takhar al-Sham, HTS's fight against ISIS, it's also been part of its efforts to consolidate control in Idlib. So first, wiping out or consuming more mainstream groups, all the while fighting ISIS, and then turning to al-Qaeda-linked and other militant groups. 
Yes, basically we've started to, to go to Idlib in 2019 and we have seen, we have witnessed since then that HTS has grown in confidence. So initially they broke up with Al-Qaeda because they thought it was counterproductive to their strategic decision to embed themselves and to survive within the, the province of Idlib. But then they couldn't totally crack down on more radical groups immediately because they were still facing initially an opposition from mainstream armed groups And so what they did with more radical groups, especially those linked to Al-Qaeda, was to condition their approach to them. They imposed condition on them. Do not orchestrate any external armed operations, so armed activities outside Syria. Do not have your own checkpoints. Do not have your own course of justice, and so on. What, what Jolani and other HCS leaders were telling us is that they didn't want to arrest them and to have a totally heavy hand over them. So they wanted to impose a more gradual approach. So many of their prominent commanders would be arrested for some time, then would be freed on condition that they don't remain involved in, uh, in armed activities. Just what, to conclude, I think it's, it's important to note that today, HDS doesn't just distance itself from transnational jihad. It really works to disallow any other group from taking part in transnational operations. It's ready at any given point to crack down on those who do. And also, they don't just abide by ceasefire arrangements mediated or negotiated by Turkey and Russia. They also crack down on any other group that is trying to undermine these ceasefires. So um, in their attempt to consolidate their monopoly over use of force, they have basically reined in any group that goes against what they stand for. And this could be seen as somewhat a continuation of the same policy they adopted with more re more moderate rebel groups um, prior to the ceasefire in, in, in the past. So it's a very similar strategy, it's just a different threat and a different target, if that makes sense. We talked a year ago, last time we were on the podcast, Darin, about uh, Abu Mohammed al-Jalani, the HTS commander. And he's still young, but I mean, he's had this sort of experience starting as a fighter and then commander with um, the group that turned into ISIS in in Iraq before being deployed by by Baghdadi uh, into Syria to sort of be ISIS's man to build a group in Syria. When ISIS broke with al-Qaeda, Jolani stuck with Al-Qaeda, sort of then fought with ISIS, and then since then has himself broken with Al-Qaeda. It's hard to think of another leader that's previously declared his affiliation, declared loyalty to uh, bin Laden or to uh, Zawahiri, who's broken in such a prominent way that Pledge of Allegiance. When you meet with sort of Jolani, that the, the Al-Qaeda break in particular, I mean, what does he say about that now? The way he described his thinking behind pledging allegiance to Al-Qaeda to us in the past is basically he was saying this was a completely tactical maneuver. Um, and Nusra at the time, the previous iteration of Hayat al sham was losing to ISIS. They were facing a lot of defections from the group and they needed some kind of jihadist backing and support. But over the years, it became very obvious that that kind of connection to Al-Qaeda is more of a liability rather than an asset, because it both um, prevented other Syrian rebel groups from going in, into alliances 
with Hayat Tahrir al-Sham to working with them out of fear of being designated or targeted by the U.S. and by the International Coalition. And they claim that they weren't really getting any support from al-Qaeda whatsoever and that the al-Qaeda leadership were not completely familiar with what was happening in Syria and it wasn't very useful for them. So Jalani's thinking at the time was that he can have it all. He can publicly dissociate himself from al-Qaeda while maintaining kind of good relations with them in private. That's not how Zawahiri saw it. The Wahri saw it as a betrayal. The guy seemed to have been still traumatized by what Baghdadi did when he separated himself and his group. Um, so he reacted very aggressively to it um, p- publicly, but also in private communiques that were later revealed. So what was intended to be a kind of smooth delinking from Al-Qaeda later on became a major, a major fight between the two groups. Since then... What Jolani and a, a small contingent of, of, of his inner circle who are Syrians and who share his mindset have been doing is that they've been not only trying to recast the group um, as more of a local Syrian organization, but they've also been systematically marginalizing um, everyone who disagreed with them. So if you look at, if, if you look at Hayat Tahrir al-Sham today, the balance of power within the group has fundamentally changed. What started as this joint venture um, between Julani and, and the, the Iraqi side of the group has really changed where many of these more hardline elements have either left or were killed or are completely marginalized and sidelined from the decision-making within Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. And the power is mostly in the hands of, of Julani and those who share his his ideology in his plan, basically, to govern. I mean, one thing about sort of pledging allegiance to Al-Qaeda, as Jerome said earlier, is the external operations, you know, the goal of uh, the, the far enemy. But there's a lot else that Salafi jihadists believe that's not just related to the far enemy, right? I mean, there's, a, there's the role of Islam in public life, there's the amount of space you give to uh, different sects or your treatment of non-Muslims. I mean, the break on the external operations is clear enough, but how does someone who has fought, you know, first with the precursor to ISIS and then as part of uh, uh, what was at the time the biggest al-Qaeda affiliate, I mean, how much has, has have those other aspects of what, you know, jihadist ideology, how much do those still run through Jelani's thinking? I think we have to see what has happened since the break with uh, al-Qaeda in 2017. So before that, there was no real ideological change. What uh, HTS and previously Jabhat al-Nusra is saying is we mostly disagreed with them about the foreign operations, but otherwise they still aligned with a similar worldview in terms of their understanding of Islam and so on. And the some of the changes that happened only happened afterwards, after the break. So by imposing their governance project through the salvation governments that ruled the, the province of Idlib, they had to accommodate other religious and political forces on the ground. So, for example, even though they are, they are Salafis, they had to become more encompassing about other Muslims. So about Sufi Muslims, about non-Salafi Muslims, and so on, and to integrate them into the governance project, integrate them into the, into the local mosque. And they've done that in, in Idlib. I mean, if you're not Salafi, for example, or if you're from a minority or Christian or you're Druze, 
do you enjoy the same rights in Idlib as other parts of the population? So there are Druze populations and Christian populations in the region. So first what they did, they opened up to other Muslims. They came back to traditional schools of jurisprudence. So by taking distance from this the previous position that was endorsed by most uh, Salafi jihadis. But then because they have a governance project, they try to reach out to the religious confessions, so to reach out to the, to the Christian communities. And when we speak to the Christian communities, the main issues are very like daily issues, you know, for example, about houses. Many Christian houses have been occupied. And that was not a sectarian phenomenon. It just happened that in the province, most people come from elsewhere. So many of the local indigenous Syrians who left, their properties, villas, apartments, and so on, have been seized by other Syrian refugees. So many of the issues that HTS had to face with regards to the Christians, for example, was to solve this issue of, uh, of property. So... Well, first of all, I'm going to qualify what I'm about to say by pointing out that visiting the area, even for extended periods, is nothing like living in it. So my views are not at all an attempt to speak on behalf of Syrians in Idlib. That said, uh, what I've seen on my trips to Idlib in the last few years is that life there is nothing like what you can imagine life under a former Al-Qaeda affiliate would look like. Right? The form of governance HDS is undertaking is conservative Islamist one. Right? But in contrast to other jihadist groups, they have not, for instance, imposed their own curriculum in schools, though they still compel gender segregations at schools and universities. Um, they have not, for instance, enforced harsh interpretations of Sharia law. Just to clarify, Darlene, I mean, there's no Taliban-style banning of girls going to school? Not at all. And uh, in, on the contrary, HDS leadership say with a lot of pride that Idlib University is full of women. It's a high percentage of, of women in, at the university. Uh, and they also haven't compelled women, for instance, to veil their faces or bend mixed gender gatherings at restaurants. Um, they haven't tried to impose a dress code on men even or like ban them from smoking, for instance. And driving through Idlib, you don't see any jihadist slogans or flags anywhere. They, they have deliberately removed those that existed in the past. And they haven't created a religious police, what is known as al-Hizbah. Of course, that bar is very low. And we have to admit that many Syrians in Idlib and beyond will rightly insist that HDS should be pressed to allow more room for personal freedoms and should be held accountable to um, things they've done in the past. Also, HTS remains highly intolerant of, of voices of dissent. That includes civil society, includes activists, includes any really any individual who opposes what they're doing. The main criticism we hear about HTS governance is from activists and oppositionists talking about HTS's authoritarian tendencies. Um, and that is a real problem and it is really undermining the quality of life for a lot of people in Italy. Though I have to say it's not comparable to the scope and depth of the horror stories you hear about the Syrian regime, for instance. Yet it's still very problematic and they should be pressured to do more on that. Um, because in their, like, they've been trying to recast the group and trying to like, open up to, to um, external powers. I think this is an opportunity for external actors to pressure them to adjust their behavior towards civil society, to allow more room for freedom of speech as well, um, to do more on minority rights, to rectify some of the mistakes that happened in the past with minority groups. So there's 
clearly been this evolution that uh, HTS and and Jolani himself have undergone that you've you've described. You know whether it's just pragmatic about the movements uh, and his survival, or whether it's a genuine change of heart is unclear. And of course, you know one could lead to the other, but the movement has changed. And yet, if you look at the course of the Syrian war, people like Jolani, in fact, Jolani himself. I mean, they've done enormous harm to the revolution, right? I mean, first he led a, a sort of ISIS-linked militant group or a group linked to what became ISIS. You know, then he led a, a, an Al-Qaeda-linked one that basically over time fought, sidelined or defeated more mainstream opposition groups. And the fact that you had people like Jolani playing these very prominent roles in the war uh, really clouded how people saw... Uh, Syrian rebels, especially in Western capitals and especially in, in D.C. Now, obviously, we don't know what would have happened absent that. I mean, you're reliant on a very big counterfactual. I mean, who knows if the U.S. would ever have got more involved and who knows what would have happened had it done so. But having spoken to officials in the Obama administration, clearly the presence of sectarian militant groups with ties to transnational jihadists, you know, that informed the way that they saw the, the, the revolution and, and probably also their, their policies. I mean, this would, this would probably make for an awkward conversation with Jolani when you, um, when you next see him. But how much does he recognise that? I mean, to sort of put it bluntly, that you know, it's all very well sitting in control of Idlib now and presenting this pragmatic face. But in essence, you've just sort of eaten the revolution from the inside and, and done a lot to keep Assad himself in power. No, absolutely. I mean, I think the the sectarian rhetoric, a lot of the violations that happen against the Druze, the Christian and Alawite communities, the suicide bombs against military targets, uh, bombing military targets very in close proximity to civilian centers, all these things really hurt the appeal of the Syrian revolution and impacted its, its image externally and amongst Western audience. And it is... A major criticism the opposition has of HDS that they both hijack the revolution and undermine it at the same time. And I can't speak to how Giovanni thinks about this, but I do think that he has come to realize that they could only survive through appealing to and cooperating with the outside world. And this is, of course, frustrating for many Syrians because he realized that many years after they have, and many years after he had spend that time criticizing them furiously for exactly what he's doing today. But I do recall in my first interview with him, he admitted that they have done mistakes in the past and that they're working to rectify it. Of course, it's something that he also got a lot of heat for saying, but just him admitting that I think is a realization of itself. It Again, it might be too late now to rectify some of the mistakes, but it does seem that they've reached the same conclusion, even if, albeit a few years after the opposition has, um, if that makes sense. I, I think one of their main issues is that, they are, I mean, they continuously argue that they've been taken by the circumstances. You know, initially they wanted to contribute and be part of the revolution, despite their affiliations to Al-Qaeda. And they even say that they should have been dealt differently that Al-Qaeda in Syria was different from what Al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan at the time one and so on, which is a line of argument that's not really aligned with the perception of Western countries of what uh, Al-Qaeda is. But then they think they were just taken by the circumstances. 
they had to give allegiance to Al-Qaeda and survive. Then they under, when they understood that it was negative, they withdrew from it and they broke up with them. But sometimes they want to have it both ways. And that's actually about what happens next. Because their vision is to say, yes, it happened in the past, now we should look forward to the future. And then they think that what they are doing, mainly protecting the area, uh, establishing some forms of governance, repressing foreign fighters and preventing them from launching uh, foreign attacks, they think that they are doing it for their own interests, but they think that it aligned with Western's expectations. But that's also the issue, because then if you are already as a group doing what Western countries would want you to do in exchange for some times of collaboration, then there is no incentive for Western countries to actually reach out to HTS, because anything that Western countries would want to achieve, HTS is already doing on the ground. And so that's a bit the conundrum in which they are now, where Western countries do not really have an incentive in reaching out to them, despite HTS's interest in doing so. So let's um, wrap up, if we can, then with one broader question. Overall, in Syria, the picture that comes from, from our conversation, I mean, it would be wrong to describe the war as frozen, but you have this sort of pause. I mean, levels of violence are nothing like what they were a few years ago. But it seems very precarious. I mean, in the northeast, as we discussed, the relative calm that kind of prevails among ISIS's enemies that the counter-ISIS fight relies on, um, you know, that hinges on the US presence, which again is sort of open to the whims of DC politics. In the northwest, in Idlib, you know, it's controlled by a former al-Qaeda affiliate that might have reformed, as we talked about, but it's still regarded with a lot of suspicion by the outside world. And the only thing stopping a regime offensive in the Northwest is Turkey's understanding with the Russians. Basically, Turkey's been prepared to deploy troops to deter a regime offensive that would push you know, potentially millions more Syrians over the Turkish border. You know, Russian President Vladimir Putin doesn't want to upend his relationship with his Turkish counterpart, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Plus, of course, you have the regime itself. I mean, you know, there's been some normalization, re-establishment of relations with some Arab governments, but basically it's still viewed as a pariah by much of the world, still brutal, still predatory. And there's been this economic collapse you describe in areas it controls. I mean, it just seems overall that there's a lot of sort of unfinished business. There's a lot still to come. I mean, is that the right way to sort of understand where Syria is now, that this is just a pause before something else happens? It does look very much like an uneasy stalemate. Um, I don't necessarily like to use the word sustainable, whether or not these um, very fragile ceasefires are sustainable, because what really looks or might look like an unsustainable situation could last for decades, right? Um, whether it's the U.S. presence in the Northeast or the Turkish presence in the Northwest or Iranian and Russian involvement in Syria, it all looks very precarious. It's all contingent on a few individuals making the call whether it's in the Kremlin or the White House or in Ankara. That said, I think at this point in the conflict, there is a mutual understanding amongst the various protagonists that they benefit more out of a stalemate rather than um, continuing the conflict. And that's true. That's true, Darin, on the regime side, or it's true of the Russians, you mean? Yeah, I was going to say with the caveat of the Syrian regime that it still holds on, at least rhetorically, to the desire to regain every inch of Syria and to reinstate its territorial control over every inch of Syria. That said, the regime is very much limited in what it can do without Russian backing. Of course, Russia remains a wild card, 
uh, it can go in any direction. But so far, the reason why these ceasefires have been holding for a bit over two years now is that the powers behind the local forces have come to the realization that they benefit more out of the status quo. And how long that would last, it's, it's, it's unclear. I don't think anyone can know. And while it's incredibly hard to predict the future, I think what we can actually do is think about the status quo now and what could be done. As you rightly, rightfully pointed out, Richard, the status quo is that we ended up as a result of 11 years of war with very problematic actors controlling these territories, whether it's the YPG in the Northeast or Ha'it Ha'it sham in the Northwest or the Turkish-backed factions in parts of Aleppo or the Syrian regime. These are all groups that either have links to transnational designated organizations or have transnational connections themselves or are sanctioned by the U.S. and by Western countries. So they're all problematic in their own right. And that's something policymakers need to start contemplating. How do we deal with these problematic actors? And realistically, there's no settlement imaginable among them, right? I mean, that's the other. It's not just that they're problematic. It's also that it's almost impossible to envisage them all getting around the table and working out the future of Syria together. Absolutely. The peace process it has been in a deadlock since it was created. It's There's no way forward for a grand settlement to the entire conflict. But again, this is the current state of calm in the country gives us an opening and an opportunity to start thinking of more political and diplomatic initiatives to try to resolve some of the sub-conflicts that were created throughout the war. We mentioned a bunch of them. We mentioned the YPG-Turkey relations. We mentioned the jihadist question in Idlib, uh, the economic situation in the regime areas, but of course the regime behavior um, that has been the main driver of this conflict. So all these sub-conflicts are equally important for the millions of Syrians still living in country and for those who have been displaced out. And I think this is an opportunity to start thinking about some of these questions. Darin, Jerome, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks, Jerome. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Darin. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Syria and on ISIS, Islamist militancy, more broadly around the world on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks as ever to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson, and thank you very much, of course, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch. Uh, if you have any ideas for the podcast, any suggestions, you can write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org, or write to the general address, podcast at crisisgroup.org. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Next week, we're probably going to talk about Somalia after the elections and whether a new government opens some space for a new approach. So I very much hope you'll join us again for that. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.